Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. I'm super sorry about last week. I had planned to record an episode, perhaps perhaps a little ambitiously, to think that I could record an episode the day before I moved. I had everything lined up to do so, and Thursday morning I woke up and there was just a list of things that needed to be done. And I was just like, look, I, I got to move. So I'm not sorry about taking a break, but I'm sorry I uh, wasn't able to give you a proper heads up on that. Thank you for understanding. As I record this week, I'm recording late. It's Monday night at 9.14 PST, so midnight on the East Coast. I'm still not fully up to speed on everything. I just got internet access in my apartment yesterday. So I've been down since Friday. So I'm halfway back in business. Um, This move is, I'll tell you about it when everything's resolved, but it hasn't gone so well. So um, I'm looking into resolutions for that now. I'll leave it at that. As of right now, the world is waiting for a verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, That thing is a mess. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about some black excellence first. I like to start off on a good note. Beth Ann Hardison, she was featured in British Vogue. She's been one of my mentors for years. The images are gorgeous. If you haven't seen them, please give them a Google when you have a chance. And the story is written by another mentor of mine, Joan Morgan. Joan Morgan could just write her ass off. She can write anything. I had the privilege of editing her once when I was at Essence. Someday I'll have Joan on and let her tell that story. But you have to see these images. It's Beth Ann Hardison. She is in head-to-toe Gucci. She looks absolutely amazing. Every bit of a model. And this is not the first time she's received her flowers. She was on the cover of Vogue, I want to say either 2020 or 2019. I can picture the black and white image in my head, but I just don't remember when. But this, this is just absolutely beautiful. And the article, it's just a testament to a life well lived. Naomi Campbell is quoted here. Bevy Smith is quoted here. And the quotes are basically the same. They're just fawning over Beth Ann Hardison, who they both refer to as the mother of the fashion industry. (laughs) Do I want to tell you the story of how I met Beth Ann Hardison? I'll tell you. It was an embarrassing moment. I was drunk as shit at an Alice Smith concert. And it was me and um, Redacted, my ex-husband. It was right before my reality show was set to come out. And there was a lot of buzz about it. There was a lot of press about it. I knew from the moment I signed the contract that it was something that I shouldn't have done, that it wasn't the right vehicle for me. I was dealing with my own insecurities about, uh, I guess, accomplishment and being seen and leaving Essence and and no longer being Demetria from Essence and, and just sort of being Demetria. And, and what that meant at the time. And I wanted to be Demetria from or Demetria on or something like that. Like at the time, just being Demetria wasn't enough for me. 
Um, so made a piss poor decision that over time, it took seven years, has finally stopped with the reverberating negative aftershock. So I'm, I'm glad that part of my life is behind me. But I was at this concert. I was drunk as shit like I was for like most of that time period. I had a glass of wine. Alice Smith is singing her whole ass off because that's what she does. She's like bite-sized, but she's got this big old voice. And, and Beth Ann Hardison, and she was with a gentleman. I think he's a music executive. I cannot picture his face, and I don't remember his name. But I knew he was someone who everyone knows. So I'm drinking. I'm singing along at the top of my lungs, off-key, because I can't hit not near one Alex Smith note. And I'm swigging this glass around, and it splashes on, on Beth Ann Hardison. The first time it happened, I, I, I noticed and I apologized. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And then I realized, like, oh, shit, that's Beth Ann Hardison. You know, I go back to being my drunken self, and, and, and I splashed her again. And she turned around, and she gave me, you know, the look your mama gives you in church, like that look of death. I don't know if you're sitting with the choir or something, and you're acting up, and you catch your mom's eye, and you know that she will come embarrass you in front of the entire congregation. That was the look that Beth Ann Hardison gave me. And she turned around, and she said something like, she didn't curse, like cut that out or pull it together or something like that. But it, it snapped me right out of my, my drunken revelry and I had to pull myself together and I apologized profusely and she said, it's fine, because um, she knew. And then she turned around and, we, and I put my glass down. I think I downed my drink. We all enjoyed the show, Splash Free. So maybe like four or five days after that, there was, I don't know, some rooftop event at some hotel. It was promoting some show. Oh, you know what it was? It was promoting, remember Own had a reality series about four women. I can't remember the name of it, but it only ran, I think, for a season. But I was invited to that event and it was like a who's who of like black women in media and entertainment in New York. I want to say it was a sit down dinner. BT was the sponsor. I remember I did an interview on the terrace with them. I don't know that it, it ever ran. I say all that to say, I go, I sit down, it's assigned seating, and who would be at the table that I was seated at but Beth Ann Hardison? So I sat down, and she says, it's you! I was sober then, and I was like, hi, hi, Beth Ann. And she was like, did you calm down from the other night? And I was like, I did. And she said, did you enjoy the show? And I said, I did, I did. And she said, I could tell. I could tell. So then after that, every time we'd run into each other, always a kind word or a random aside. She started following me on Facebook. So sometimes, like, you know, we'll be talking about whatever. And then Beth Ann Hardison pops onto my timeline. I'm just like, whose life am I living? The last time I saw her was at Leading Women Defined in 2020. Deborah Lee, um, who used to run BET for years and years and years. I'm actually, like, decades and decades and decades. She does an annual event for, for black women. And it was the first year that she'd done it out in California. And usually, like, there's always a schedule conflict when I get an invite to go. So that was, like, my first time. And this is before I moved to California. Um, I was thinking about it. Actually, when I was out here for that event, I decided to stay over a couple days. And I was like, well, maybe L.A. Like, let me go look and, and see what the apartment situation is like. And I found the first place that I lived in. Um, when I got here, remember the loft I used to talk about? My mountains, my mountains. After that event is, is when I decided to, when I found a place and then decided to move. But Beth Ann Hardison was a speaker 
at the event. She and Iman interviewed each other. Iman, the supermodel, is one of her best friends. But after the event, and there was a whole throng of people, you know, wanting to speak with her or take pictures with her. And she saw me, like, you know, in the masses trying to get to her. So she, like, waved me over. Um, and she was like, how are you? You know, like, I haven't seen you. And I heard you left New York. And I was like, yeah, I'm in D.C. I'm trying to figure it out. And she's like, well, you know, it's been a while. So what have you figured out? And she was the first person I told that I was like, I think I'm going to, you know, actually move to California. I'm going to go look at it. I'm going to stay over a couple extra days while I'm out here and look at apartments and and see what comes. And she was like, yeah, I think that'll be good for you. You know, New York people never like to hear anyone leaving New York, even though masses, masses, some mass exodus out of New York. Most of my New York friends, most of my New York squad that I came up with in my 20s and, and early 30s, most of them actually live in L.A. now. But there's always been this weird stigma about, um, you know, New York people leaving for the West Coast and, and going Hollywood. So when Beth Ann Hardison was like, good, good, I think that'll be good for you. I was like, OK, like I appreciate the, the vote of confidence. Um, that's the last time I saw her. I've spoken to her, at least on social media. I say all that to say that you should definitely check out her latest feature in Vogue. It starts with she and Joan are sitting in, uh, are sitting in Beth Ann Hardison's Gramercy Park apartment, which is a sexy part of the city. Joan describes that, quote, they are surrounded by collections of things that reveal her affinities. There are statuettes from her beloved Mexico, where she's had an abode since the 90s. She has other homes in Marrakesh and New York State's Hudson Valley. She's got jewelry acquired over many years of travel and copious amounts of art, some from the Caribbean and some gifted by friends now gone. David Bowie, Keith Harding, Andy Warhol, and Jean-Michael Basquiat. She has postcards from when the artist sold them on downtown street corners for less than the cost of today's greeting cards. Do you know how much those things are probably worth? I'm scrolling the site right now. Like These pictures are so decadent. Oh my God, they're so beautiful. Oh, for those of you who don't know who Beth Ann Hardison is, I'm like, I hear you fawning. I hear this name, but who is she? I'll read you Joan's words because Joan just, just, Joan just be writing. I need Joan to come on the show and talk to me about anything Joan wants to talk about. I'm obsessed with Joan Morgan. And just to be clear, I'm name dropping because I'm proud of people. Please believe, like, I got ain't shit friends that I never mentioned to y'all because they ain't doing shit and they ain't shit, but they my friends nonetheless. Just to be clear. And I'm reading Joan now. A highlight reel of the now 78-year-old's extraordinary career in fashion begins in the 1960s in the New York Garment District. She was the first black salesperson to work in a showroom as an office manager and as a fit model. By the 1970s, she joined a cohort of groundbreaking black models, including Beverly Johnson, Billy Blair, Alva Chin, Pat Cleveland, and Hardison's best friend, Iman. She's walked runways for Willie Smith, Calvin Klein, Perry Ellis, Ann Klein, and Oscar de la Renta. Perhaps Hardison's most famous walk was the 1973 Battle of Versailles fashion show. Pause. Have you seen that documentary? I don't remember where I was. I was on some retreat and the woman who did the documentary and her name fails me. It's late. Bear with me. She was doing screenings of that documentary. I think it actually made it to market. But if you have never seen the Battle of Versailles, go look up this documentary. It's like OG, OD, black excellence. You will love, love, love. But the Battle of Versailles, it pitted American designers against French houses in the name of raising funds for the Palace of Versailles. Bethann closed the show for designer Stephen Burroughs, an exhibition of sassy Brooklyn Fierce that whipped the crowd into a stomping, cheering frenzy. She's been a creative director and producer for Isi Miyake and Valentino, a swimwear designer for brand Ibiza, and an agent at Click Model Management, 
which she left in the 80s to start her own agency, Beth Ann Management. Also in the 80s, she founded the Black Girls Coalition with Iman, giving models such as Naomi Campbell a platform to speak out against the ongoing lack of representation of Black models in advertisement, editorial, and on runways. In 2008, she joined forces. Do you remember Italian Vogue used to have a Black issue every year? She worked on that with the then editor-in-chief to create the iconic all-Black issue. And in 2013, she wrote an open letter to the fashion capitals of the world, and I'm quoting Joan, which spelt matters out for white industry leaders in unequivocal terms. If you use one or two models consistently for one or two, three seasons of color or none, the result, no matter the intention, is racism. The following year, she received the CFDA's Eleanor Lambert Founders Award for decades of championing diversity. Her work has been celebrated by the Black Girls Rock Awards. Shout out to Bev Bond. I love her. She's hilarious. I did this event with Joan Kierna Mayo and Bev Bond at the Kennedy Center. After the event was over, we were all standing outside talking, and I was with my mom. I don't know what made Kierna ask me, something about L.A. I just signed the lease on my, my first apartment out here, and I said, yeah, I'm moving to L.A., and Bev Bond was like, what? No! and tried to jump on the elevator with me and my mom to try to talk me out of it. But back to Beth Ann Hardison. Because she's 78 and the work is not done. She currently serves on Gucci's Changemakers Council since 2019. Remember Gucci had that, um, that moment with Dapper Dan? The quick recap of the backstory is Dapper Dan in the 80s was making knockoffs with the Gucci logo. And he was making stuff that black people like to wear. And Gucci shut him down. And then fast forward, what, like 30 years? Gucci went and created a whole look based on his designs and ran Brother Dan no coin. So there was a social media outcry about that. And Gucci decided to make right. So one of the ways that they did that was creating the Changemakers Council. And Bethann Hardison is part of her role. She helps identify qualified recipients of the millions of dollars Gucci has allocated for community-based social justice and arts organizations. She also weighs in on selections for college scholarships for marginalized students pursuing careers in fashion and offers insight on how to give much-needed support for up-and-coming fashion talent. She is also Gucci's executive advisor for global equity and culture engagement. She reports directly to the head of Gucci. Bethann is currently working on a memoir. There's also a documentary of her life that she's co-directing and an acting debut at 78 on the hit series Black Lightning, where she will have a reoccurring role. Joan asked Bethann what she thinks about aging. She said, I enjoy being an elder and the wisdom that comes with it. But age is something I just don't give into. I think more about running out of time. Told you it's a must read and I didn't even read you all the good parts. But you definitely need to pick up that issue of British Vogue and you definitely got to log on and see these pictures. Like, stunning. Congratulations to, to Beth Ann Hardison. I know she's been lauded many times, but this, this stay outdid themselves. Edward, Edward Innifel, Edward, the EIC over at British Vogue, you outdid yourself, sir. You always do good. Actually, you always do great. You've been killing it. Like knocking American Vogue out the water. It's amazing how diversity and melanin can just pop some clothes and pop some images to life. I'd say who knew, but everybody with melanin did. I'm glad British Vogue does too. If American Vogue could get on it, 
They try. They just dry. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Oh, there's this story. I thought it was just a California conversation, but it's, um, it's actually a national news story. When I was looking at the deets for it, I saw it was covered in USA Today and a bunch of other places. But I've been following this story of Bruce Beach. It's currently known as Manhattan Beach Today where the population is less than 1% black. But back in, let me, let me pull up my notes and get these dates right. Back in 1912, Willa and Charles Bruce bought a nice plot of land near the ocean for $1,225. That's about $30,000 in today's money. And they opened a beach resort for and by black residents. It was not met well by the city. They were harassed by the KKK, which... I read that. I was like, the Ku Klux Klan was in California? Ku Klux Klan was everywhere. But the Ku Klux Klan harassed them. City officials also harassed them. They would do dumb shit. Like, um, so so the, the couple has this, this beach resort that caters to black folks. And they would force residents to walk half a mile in either direction to access the beach, even though there was beach property right in front of the resort, just to be difficult. Or when people came to park their cars, they would set the meters at 10 minutes. So you either couldn't park your car or you'd have to constantly be running back and forth to the meter. Nuisance shit. They tried to set the property on fire. They ended up burning down somebody else's house. White people, white people in. That's why so many people watched them and got so goddamn upset because they were like, this is then and this is now. This isn't entertainment. I know it's horror and it's supposed to be scary, but it's hitting on the wrong notes. We're so dissatisfied with that series. Which, pause, y'all know Lena Waithe didn't write that, right? 
like she was an executive producer. And so, yes, as an executive producer, like, you know, that's your project. I get it because I'm also an executive producer now. I'm going to mention that as often as I want to, because that is like the highlight of my life right now. I've wanted that for years and years and years. Executive producers don't have like carte blanche over their projects. You have say so. You have input. Like your, your commentary will be seriously considered. It won't just be brushed off. I didn't have control over the casting. I had notes to the network of what I wanted the cast to look like, but they went and cast who they thought best fit that, which I was fine with the casting. I, I, I particularly loved Deborah Joy Winans. I thought she was so excellent. But like the day to day of it, I, I wasn't involved with everything. Like there were, there were notes that I had that, you know, it was like, yeah, like we hear you, we, we feel you, but we're going to keep this. Or we hear you, we feel you, and we're going to change it, but we're going to change it to something else. I wasn't footing the bill for the production. When you're footing the bill, you have much more say-so. But an executive producer does not make every single decision for the show. And if I believe there were other executive producers on the project, and that's not a defense of Lena Waithe. And any, I don't know her to defend her. Like I, I met her once when I came to L.A. She'd be out and she'd be everywhere. Everyone who works in the industry and has been out has met Lena Waithe. She, she out, out. She out everywhere. She likes to be out the house. She's a social woman. But I say that to say that, like, you know, like, the creator of that project is a gentleman by the name of Little Marvin. That's his project. Also his project. It's not just one person who brings a series to life. But, you know, Little Marvin also worked on that project. People, but people have been going for Lena Waite's throat. My God, they've been going for her throat. Why did I bring that up? I brought that up because we're talking about black people buying property and being harassed by white folks. That's why I brought it up. In 1924... City officials condemned the neighborhood where the Bruce's property was located. The local council said they needed a plot of land for a park, but they ain't build no park for another 30 years. They took these black people shit on GP, not because they wanted it. They just ain't want black people to have it. So the Bruce's sued, rightfully so, and they sought $120,000. They were given $14,000. So after their property was taken, and obviously their spirits deflated, if not completely defeated, a member of the family, and I think this is from the USA Today article, describes the Bruce's, his great, great, great grandmother and grandfather. They were poor and totally devastated. He said that they moved to the east side of L.A. and spent the rest of their lives working as cooks in other people's diners. Willa died five years after the property was taken. So the Bruce family, of which there are many, there was a beautiful family reunion photo. There's a bunch of Bruce's. They have been diligently suing to get this property back. And the reason I'm talking about this story now is it looks like these black folks are about to give their property back. State Senator Stephen Bradford, he's black, in case you were wondering, he introduced legislation recently that would enable the transfer of ownership from Manhattan Beach back to the Bruce family. And apparently this property is worth a good $75 million now. So I hope these black folks get their money. It has not been an easy process. There are legislators like Bradford who are working to get these black folks their rightful property and and their rightful coin. But earlier this month, the Manhattan Beach City Council, the same city council that took the land 100 years ago, they acknowledged that the land was wrongfully taken, but they voted to oppose an apology to the Bruce family because they think that it would make the city liable for future lawsuits. 
There's also an anonymous group of residents, and they're white because the city is 99% white. They've run a full-page ad in a local paper arguing that, quote, a woke mob has exaggerated the history of racism at Bruce's Beach, and they also urge the council not to apologize. Jenny's Han, she is not black, but she is an ally. She is a member of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, and she said it is the county's intention to return this property to the family. So it's got good momentum, and I hope that it works out well for the Bruce family. Run them folks they money. Run them folks they rightful coin. Not even thank you kindly. You shouldn't have done this shit in the first place. Now do what's right to correct your wrongs. Somebody asked the Bruce family, they said, what y'all going to do when y'all, you know, you get this land back? Like, what are are you going to do with it? And they were like, oh, we can lease it back to the city for for use. Otherwise, it'll be private property. I think there's a, um, what is it called? What are those people who save folks at the beach? Come on. Lifeguards. So there's a lifeguard training facility on the property. One of the representatives from the family, they were like, yeah, we'll lease it back to them. And we're going to charge them for all the years of rent unpaid. I don't think Manhattan Beach going to have that lifeguard facility there. All them years worth of back rent, it's not going to go so well. I ain't mad at him either. I ain't mad. This counts as black excellence. Patrice Cullors from Black Lives Matter was the New York Post or the New York Daily News talked about her home purchases. They ran a cover story that said Black Lives Manners, M-A-N-O-R-S. They talked about the multiple home purchases that she'd made in California and in Atlanta. They made it seem like she'd done it recently, but she's, been, but she's bought properties over time. But we talked about her on a previous episode, and I said that I hope that she would you know, be forthright about where her funds came from so people could shut the fuck up. But I also said she could tell everybody to kiss her black ass, and that would be an acceptable response as well. She decided to go with the forthright angle. She said that there is no connection between her home purchases and her role in the Black Lives Matter movement. She released a prepared statement. She said, to be abundantly clear, as a registered 501c3, Black Lives Matter cannot and did not commit any organizational resources toward the purchase of my personal property. Any insinuation or assertion to the contrary is categorically false. She also said that she's been paid just a total of $120,000 through the organization since 2013 for acting as a spokesperson and for her, quote, political education work. But she has not been paid since 2019. That reads like she hasn't been paid, like she's been seeking money and they didn't cut the check. I think she's not been taking a salary. I'm not sure. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on that one. She also pointed out that she has many, many jobs. She does much work outside of Black Lives Matter. She has two book deals, one of which was a New York Times bestselling memoir. She also signed a production deal with Warner Brothers to develop scripted dramas and comedies, docuseries, and animated programming for children, young adults, and families. She has also noted that she is a public speaker, owns a gallery, has a deal with YouTube, and teaches at a private liberal arts college in Arizona. She released a statement and she also addressed it on the Instagram on her personal page. She says, quote, I've worked multiple jobs across many organizations my entire life. I am a published author, writer, producer, professor, public speaker and performance artist. 
I love my work in all of these areas and I work hard to provide for my family. I am accountable to my community in pursuit of an abolitionist world founded in transformative justice. I do not receive a salary or benefits from Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, period. This effort to discredit and harass me and my family is not new, nor is it acceptable. It has taken away from where the focus should be, ending white supremacy. On top of these articles being full of lies, it is also dangerous. This is doxing, attacking someone online by disseminating private information about them. It's harmful and it's scary for people and their loved ones, especially someone who receives death threats regularly. To my fellow black activists, you know what this is. We've seen this tactic of terror time and again. I'll admit this is a scary time for me, but I will not let this be the moment that silences me. We still have work to do. She posted this on her personal Instagram page and she added, there's a false and defamatory article about me being amplified by media right now and I want to make some things clear. So thank you, Patrice, for clearing that up. She's good with me. I find her answers sufficient and I appreciate her focus on Ending white supremacy. That's what we should all be working for. Not where this black woman gets her rightful and legal coin. I was going to say, speaking of black women causing a ruckus. Yeah, I will say that. Maxine Waters. Auntie Maxine. She is in the news. She's out in Minnesota to show her support for the protesters in response to the killing of Dante Wright and also to support his family. As I mentioned previously, we're still awaiting the verdict for the Derek Chauvin trial. I I don't know how that's going to play out. I mean, I I obviously hope that he is found guilty. I don't think that that's actual justice. George Floyd is dead. Derek Chauvin is not. Even a life in prison, it might be a hard life, but it's a life nonetheless. I also recognize, and I think I said this, that this is America. It could go either way. Like, I remember I was in eighth grade when the Rodney King verdict came in which probably means that video surfaced when I was in seventh to go through a whole trial and get a verdict. But I remember like seeing that Rodney King video, played it on a loop in the same way that, that's been done with, with George Floyd's video and other videos of, um, of black people being murdered by police or, or harassed or beaten. And I remember how outraged everyone was. It wasn't a, I can't believe this happened. But every black person either has a story or knows someone with a story of some crazy encounter with the police. But the outrage wasn't seeing it. The outrage was it being recorded. And now everyone could see what black folks have been talking about forever. But I remember thinking, like, there's no possible way they can't find these cops guilty because it's on tape. Like, there's video. Like, you can't deny it. Like, you can see it. Like, it's grainy, but you can see that they're beating the shit out of him, and he's on the ground. He's not fighting back. Like, they beat the shit out of him. He can't. He's not able. We know how that verdict turned out. Like, they found him not guilty, and Los Angeles went up in flames, which, you know, it is what it is. You don't care about our black-ass lives, but you want us to care about your property? In what world? In what world? But Auntie Maxine is in Minnesota, and she said about what I just did. She called for protesters in Minnesota. Who knew that Minnesota was going to be like the hotbed of, I don't know, racial justice, civil rights, black anger, rightful black anger? But Auntie Maxine, on Saturday night, she called for protesters to stay on the street and get more confrontational. 
She has been largely derided for those comments. Um, you know, people saying that she's inciting a riot or she's encouraging violence. I don't think that's what she said, because the quote is, stay on the street, protest. They out there already. Get more confrontational. Okay, I'm, maybe I'm unclear, because I, I remember not so long ago when there was a president, when there was a president of the United States and he told people, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And he told a group of crazed white people to go over to the Capitol and to make your voices heard. Then mofos stormed the Capitol, wanted to kill the Speaker of the House, Pelosi, and wanted to hang the vice president. They built a gallows outside the Capitol. But Republicans argue tooth and nail, no, no, that's not what he meant. He wasn't inciting a riot. He wasn't telling people to be violent. He wasn't telling people to storm the Capitol. I watched a whole impeachment trial about this. And a whole bunch of Republicans got up and was like, no, no, not what he meant. But now these same Republicans are coming for Auntie Maxine's head. They're talking about she needs to be removed from her job. You know, she represents South Central L.A., you know, them people love to riot. We just talked about Rodney King. South Central LA will riot in a minute. Stop playing with them people. They done voted Maxine Waters in a million and two times. They not going to see her leave. Even if they kicked her out, all they're going to do is vote her right back in. I promise you, no one who voted for Maxine Waters has a single issue with what she said about getting more confrontational or staying in the street. They elect her to say shit like that. They like it. That's why they have her there. She represents them. She also said what I would say, like a good, like, you can't say all black people. It's some of us just wandering in the wind. I think a good 90% of black people want some like, yeah, burn the shit down. Because again, you can't keep killing black people with no sense of justice, with no punishment, and expect black people to just sit around docile and be like, well, that's okay. So she said what she said. It's caused a huge firestorm. The judge overseeing Chauvin's case he told the defense attorney, Chauvin's lawyer, he said Maxine Waters' comments could be grounds for appealing a verdict in the trial. And let me read you the whole Maxine Waters quote, just to give it context. She said, we're looking for a guilty verdict and we're looking to see if all the talk that took place and has been taking place after they saw what happened to George Floyd. If nothing does not happen, then we know that we got to not only stay in the street, but we have got to fight for justice. That's what she said. The defense attorney had already asked for a mistrial because of all the publicity in the case, which like, nigga. The judge in this case, he added, weirdly, this is where he stopped making sense. I mean, in, in addition to even suggesting that there should be an appeal, he said, I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch and our function. Blah, 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 blah. He goes on to say, I think it's prejudiced us with additional material that would prejudice this jury. He added, a congresswoman's opinion really doesn't matter a whole lot. Well, if her opinion doesn't matter a whole lot, then why are you even talking about it being grounds for an appeal? Huh? Is it me? I'm so upset waiting for this verdict. I mean, I got a whole bunch of other stuff going on in my life, but this just adds to the stress of it all. I'm just on pins and needles. I really don't know what the verdict will be. I know what America is capable of. I know that America is fully capable of acquitting this man and, and blaming George Floyd for his own death, saying that like he had drugs in his system or heart failure or whatever. I know they about to come with some bullshit and I'm just I'm preparing myself for it.
I'm also preparing for like, you know, Minnesota, like clearly they like to riot. Like that's going to happen. I don't know what will happen in other cities as well. You know, the, the protests over George Floyd's murder happened in every single state in, in the country and then also internationally as well. I would not be surprised if, if America went up in flames if Chauvin is acquitted. So we'll see. We'll see. Do we get some ratchetness in this episode? I feel like we're just, we're so serious. I was reading this great New York Times article about pay pigs. Have you heard of pay pigs? The actual headline is, she gets paid just to humiliate her fans. The high-priced hustle of financial domination where pay pigs send tributes to their cash masters. So the article starts out, it talks about a woman named Mistress Marley. She is a professional dominatrix from Harlem, and she's in Tulum, where she's rented a four-bedroom villa with some of her friends. Whenever Mistress Marley wants money, she would set up her iPhone, and she would tell her, she would set up her iPhone, and she would command her online suitors to pay her. She tweeted, Tulum has been amazing thus far. Keep funding my trip. And then she dropped her cash app and a 15-second video showing off her curvaceous bikini body. Soon, the money began to flow. One of the gentlemen, he sent $500. He says, please take all of my money for your trip. I don't deserve it. The New York Times verified these screenshots. Another man sent $250. Another man, he sent $400. He said, I'd do anything to be owned by you. Y'all, what is this? I've been living life wrong. I've been living life wrong. I'm about to take some of this money. I've got braces now. I'm about to take some money. I'm going to go get me a BBL. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm not. But I've been living life wrong. There are people out here who are just telling people, send me money. And people actually send it? I could have had a whole different kind of hustle. I'm out here trying to be respectable. I could have been ratchet. These girls is racking up. The New York Times says, quote, Welcome to the lucrative world of financial domination a form of BDSM that has flourished during the pandemic when many sex workers and their customers have migrated online because of social distancing precautions. The concept is simple, even if the allure is not immediately self-evident. Finsubs, short for financial submissives, send monetary tributes to a financial dominatrix in exchange for being humiliated and degraded. Look, I got a mouth on me. I can tell people they ain't shit if they're going to send me $500 in exchange. I know I'm a life coach. I'm supposed to be, you know, like being my best and better self. But if all I got to do is be like, fuck you, you suck, and you send me $500, I could change careers. I could change careers. Shit, you can too. Mistress Marley says that she loves her job. Of course you do. I love waking up every day realizing that submissive men pay all my bills and I don't have to spend a dime. This is the job as she describes it. Trysts take place mostly online. The humiliation could be as fleeting as a few moments or persist for hours during so-called draining sessions when the dominatrix hurls a barrage of insults and demands that ends only when a monetary cap is reached or a FinSub's bank account hits zero, whichever comes first. In its purest form, financial domination is not transactional. I'm quoting from the Times just to be clear. Sending money is the kink, and fence subs offer tributes without expecting anything in return. The arousal is in the act. 
Why don't I know people that just want to send me money as their kink? I want to know these kinds of people. I'm doing something wrong with my life. Mistress Marley says that she has made up to $5,000 a week as a financial dominatrix or fendom. She provided the Times with screenshots of financial transactions. Man, this lady got a master's degree. She says after graduation, she found a job in fashion as a buyer for a large corporation, but she wasn't earning as much as she hoped. She found out about women who can make a few thousand a month, so she decided she'd try it. By her second year, she was making $2,500 a week. That's when she quit her job in fashion. $2,500 a week, that's $10,000 a month times 12. This chick was making six figures telling people they ain't shit. Are you serious? As her following grew, she became bolder. In 2019, she attended homecoming at an HBCU from which she graduated. She wore full dominatrix regalia. That's not the scandal. You know what the scandal is? She walked through homecoming at an HBCU with a white man on a leash. She said she met him a few days earlier on a social media platform for the BDSM community. The New York Times describes... She walked the man across the campus like a dog, stopping occasionally to pat his balding head. A video shows onlookers gawking and snapping photos. One attendee shared a video on Twitter with the caption, she brought her sugar daddy to homecoming. Mistress Marley reposted it with the correction, that's not my sugar daddy, it's my sub. He pays me to control him. Look, I walk a white man on a leash. I ain't go to an HBCU, but I can show up to one with a white man on a leash if it gives people shits and giggles. And if this mofo is paying me, are you serious right now? As hard as I work for my money, I could just be walking white men on leashes for $120,000 a year. As hard as I worked in my 20s when my waist was still snatched, I was working multiple jobs. Sometimes 15 days on, one day off, start over again. And still wasn't making 120. This chick is making six figures walking white men on leashes, y'all. She said, for me, especially as a black woman, I see my financial gains as reparations. Because the majority, if not all of my clients, are white men. Shit. Y'all. Y'all. Are there any white men that want a COVID-thick black chick to walk them on leashes? Look, rent is due. I walk a white man on a leash and tell him he not shit. Gladly. You know what? For new customers, the first time I'll do it for free. If you're a white man who wants to be walked on a leash, I'll do that shit for you. For my ancestors. But you're going to have to pay me after that, though. This is crazy. The article goes on and on. It talks to other women who are in the life. But nothing's quite as fascinating as Mistress Marley. It's a cute girl, too. Man. Talk about don't waste your pretty. That's not what the phrase meant, but it applies here. Shit. Look, when y'all see me in a don't waste your pretty shirt now, know that I'm thinking about multiple things. I'm thinking about the respectable, but I'm also thinking about Mistress Marley and the ratchet and her reparations. Okay, now the article's going back to Mistress Marley. She's recounting one of her draining sessions from last July. She has a sub who's a college student. She said she wore a black bra and a leather corset. She logged on to Skype. She's not even seeing these people in person. Are you kidding me? She logged on to Skype from her Harlem bedroom and she immediately received $50 on Cash App. She said, good boy, now send more. He sent another hundred. She then ordered him to get on all fours. He sent another hundred. She said, good piggy, 
Now double it. She said she picked up her phone and scrolled through Instagram like a bored teenager. When she looked up, she saw another 200. The submissive bowed his head, averting eye contact. He said, I'm not worthy, mistress. She said, you're right. Now get on your knees and beg. She told him he was pathetic. She said, you'll never be able to touch this. He sent another $100 until the total hit $1,000, which took about five minutes. She said at the end of the session, she snapped her laptop shut without saying goodbye and posted a screenshot of her new cash app balance. I'm never quitting my job, she wrote in the caption. Shit. 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 She got classes for this? I know that's, that's more work than she's used to doing. A sis could make a good $1,000 a pop, give an hour-long session, get 20 to 30 women, that's 30000 an hour. Sis, I hope you listening. If stupid white men want to send you their money while you talk to them like shit, earn your coin, sis. It's legal. I'm amazed at what people will spend their money on. But I ain't mad at sis for trying it because she trying it and it's working. Shit. Shit. In other news, uh, remember last episode we talked about Kid Cootie on Saturday Night Live. And he wore that floral dress in homage to Kurt Cobain, but also to promote his new collaboration um, with, uh, what is it called? Off-White. The dress is part of the collaboration. So, you know, that performance was promo. But it caused a firestorm. I wrote about it, and I told y'all, these, these dudes cursed me the fuck out. They called me all types of slave feminist bitches. That post went viral, and they, they were on my ass. But I reached out to my friend, David Johns. He's the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. The National Black Justice Coalition is a civil rights organization dedicated to the empowerment of black, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer individuals. But he spends a great deal of time speaking about issues around um, gender and sexuality and same-sex loving um, and how those issues um, exist on their own and how they also conflate with one another. So I wanted to have him come on the show to talk about men and why they so damn mad about this man in a dress. Like, what is the underlying issue here? Like, I I know y'all not mad about a bunch of cotton sewed together. What does this cotton represent? What does it what does it mean to you? And why is it such a threat? David and I did this interview um, before I moved, and I'd hoped that it it could have run last Friday, but I, again, I just couldn't pull it together um, to record the podcast last Thursday. I'm glad that I can share it with you today. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please welcome my dear friend David Johns to Ratchet and Respectable. So wonderful to have you on Ratchet and Respectable. This has been a long time coming. I cannot tell you how excited I am to be having this conversation with you on this platform. I also need to tell you that like, as a long-term friend, as, as a fan and supporter of your work in the fight for, for justice and you know, just Black people being seen, acknowledged, and allowed to live, the basics, I just want you to know that like, right now, right now, in this moment, like, I, didn't, I know what you go through. I didn't realize how bad it was. And I really just want to like thank you for having like the fortitude getting up every day to do what is sometimes just a thankless and punishing job. I received that. I appreciate you. I have been a longtime fan and admirer of the ways in which you have lived your human experience uh, and offered it up for public consumption. Um, I want to thank you for that. Um, I also thank you for seeing uh, the way that I show up uh, in the world, trying to 
uh, hold, create, uh, make space as a teacher and speaker and writer for the beautiful diversity that has always existed in our community um, to allow us all to be free, like free with a capital F. I asked you to come on the show because I wanted to discuss the visceral rage in response to um, Kid Cudi on um, Saturday Night Live and just having like the audacity to show up in a dress that he felt like wearing. You know, he wanted right. to pay homage to Kurt Cobain. Right. He puts on this floral dress. Um, and he pays homage in other ways. But this dress, this man in this dress has sent the internet into, or parts of the internet into a frenzy in a way that I haven't seen before. And like, you know, you and I are both in this space. We talk about freedom and social justice and change and all of these things. But like, I thought we were progressing. And I almost think we might have gone back a few steps over time. I struggle with all of that. And the thing that I spent, I literally had a dinner conversation COVID appropriately yesterday with a friend and we devoted like literal time and energy to trying to wrap our heads around the question of why do so many people care? Like care to the point of having visceral public responses that are mired in what to me feels like things that we should be beyond. And I am I am uh, fascinated by it all, to say the least. Because I feel like at one point we devolved to the point where it was like, okay, you see something you wouldn't do, something you didn't like, and we just sort of like got it down to, fuck that, I ain't doing that. But like now it's just like, like the comments, like the destruction of Black men, the agenda to destroy the Black family, like the harm to children. And I was like, really? Really? Over a dress? Right, right. What is this about? I stepped back from all of that. I processed first that Kurt Cobain himself, who Kid Cudi has a tattoo of on his on his body, has said, quote, wearing a dress shows I can be as feminine as I want. I'm a heterosexual, big deal. But if I was a homosexual, it wouldn't matter either. Like, that's what Kurt Cobain is saying. And it's an acknowledgement to me of one... Gender being a social construct, something that was introduced by people so that men who define themselves in a particular way, and that's changed over time, and we can debate that later, could could sit in positions of authority and have power over women. That's what that's about. So that's one part of the conversation. And then the second part is the presentation of dress. And so I stepped away again from, you know, what it means for a rapper to be in a dress that, side note, are uh, uh, asterisks. Like, I didn't really care for the dress. He didn't look that comfortable to be in a dress. I, I, I had some questions about the accessories. Uh, but we're like, we can't even get to that because, you know, folks are having a visceral response. But then I, I thought about three things related to fashion. One is for everybody who gets into this, like, pseudo pan-Africanist bullshit Tribal leaders, leaders of tribes throughout the continent of Africa wore and some wear things that we would define based on our narrow, binaristic, Eurocentric, American ways of thinking about things as skirts or dresses. It, it has nothing to do with their leadership or their position within their tribe. It has nothing to do with their masculinity. It has really nothing to do with their role which is what some of this devolves to when folks get in this, like, this is a threat to my masculinity bag. And and, and so that's purely African as, as a thing, right? For all of us who are descendants and who, who, who claim to love Blackness, that's one. 
The second thing is that the distinction of men wearing trousers and women wearing dresses is a fairly recent and I hope short-lived phenomenon. 12th century Europe, around AD 800, Charlemagne, not the God, but Charlemagne, the first Christian (laughs) king of, of unified Europe, introduced gendered fashion and the, the 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 binary was around that like men who were soldiers dressed differently than men who had jobs it wasn't about men and women at that point fast forward to uh 19th century when men start incorporating skirts and stockings in the french revolution the, the the fashion demarcations was about status. It was about if you had a job and you were working, you wore trousers because it provided your body protection. If you had money, you weren't in these streets working. And so you wore skirts and tights and things that look a whole lot like jeggings. We as Americans who overconsume in the spirit of capitalism have embraced this evolution of fashion such that people who have money buy bags and 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 shoes and belts and had the ability to play with fashion and to push boundaries and to test stuff out. We've always given performers passes. I think about like the fashion that I was just reminded of watching Earth Wind and Fire, right? And mm. at my core, the thing that I struggle with with like my brothers who who like purport to be righteous about this bullshit is that we should celebrate every time a Black person gets to do anything that allows them to push boundaries, to test limits, to express themselves in ways that are not constrained by white supremacy, by Eurocentric ways of being and thinking and doing. And, and in these moments where we have opportunities to celebrate folks, Montero Lamont Hill, a.k.a. Lil Nas X, Kid Cudi, uh, Zaya Wade, Big Frida, Instead of celebrating and protecting them so that they can continue to do more, so that there's more space for more of us to do things that are otherwise thought of as queer or not socially acceptable, whatever the fuck that means, people retrench and double down on the ignorant shit. And I just, that part is what it senses me the most. So I think that the idea of the shift is what is yeah, right. causing such a rage. Like, there is a deep-seated fear of, of men and whatever this traditional masculinity, this definition of masculinity, there, there's a fear that it's ending and I see them clinging to it. And I also realize that when I use this language, I also sound like the way we talk about white folks and their, their privileges and their racism. And we're just like, you know, they're going to die out at some point. Like this is the last days. This is their last stand. A lot of people just don't seem, especially the men who are so upset. It's like you're pushing against white folks for change. And then you're also pushing against other people not to change. Yeah, this is why my friend Cece uh, would say that that all of us need white supremacy rehab. It's the failure to acknowledge that you have imbibed, you have drank the Kool-Aid, you, have, you, you are doing that which you purport to want to get away from. And, and, and I think what I would say, having you know, taken a breath literally and figuratively to my brothers who are struggling with this is, that's just not how it works, bro. Like you can, you can do a number of things, including accept this as an opportunity to think more critically about what your relationship to your masculine identity is, means, 
looks and feels like and really for you, but in relation to other men as well, you could ignore all of that and say, fuck it, I'm not going to do that. And accept that in other spaces in the world right now, men wear things that look like skirts and still get to feel like men. And quote, traditional senses of masculine um, responsibilities. I'm even struggling with these terms because they don't feel native because they're not natural. They've been designed and it's a fairly recent invention. And so for folks who are like, what the hell is he talking about? Right now in Fiji, men wear sullies. In Indonesia, men wear sarongs. In Hawaii, men wear kapekas. Kapekas, I might be, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but it's spelled K-I-K-E-P-A. In Samoa, it's a lava lava. And most often we celebrate that like folks connected to Celtic and Celtic heritage wear kilts. And they still are men. And and whatever that means to y'all who need to have that term and cling to it for dear life. So I want us to all be equipped with a little bit more information so we can interrogate the things that we feel like we need to hold on to. And I want brothers to not feel like they have to have their guards up and fight to protect this socially constructed idea that should not be threatened by another man deciding to wear a dress. So in listening to the guys, there's a consistent thread about there being like an agenda against masculinity or an agenda against toxic masculinity. And in a sense, I think there is. I think all the people who are, who have suffered under toxic masculinity, not all, because a lot of people who have suffered under toxic masculinity, including men, which all of them don't recognize. But I think there is definitely an agenda to push against it. How do we get guys on board with change, or is this just a futile concept? I don't think it's a futile concept, and I think that the direct answer to your question of how we get brothers on board for change is slowly. Uh, To be clear and transparent, uh, slow and gradual, persistent attempts to chip away and challenge this over time. Uh, And that's where we have been, and that's where Kid Cudi invited us to be at present. I really struggle as a lover of words, somebody who believes that there's power and precision. I'm a, you know, a student of Aunt Iyala, where you got to name a thing, a thing, beloved. And the, the newness around like even wanting to like coddle brothers and say toxic masculinity doesn't allow us to get to the root cause that it is masculinity in and of itself is, it, that is toxic. It, it, it is the, the righteous indignation that says that your male identity allows you to say what another brother can and cannot do with cloth on his body that is toxic. It is the, the, the masculine assumption that other people, women, men, other people exist for your pleasure such that you feel entitled to information or access to them when it is convenient to you. It is is the righteous indignation that, 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 that Black trans women are entitled to disclose their identity to people who pursue them 
and then persecute them when acknowledged for doing so publicly, that is the fucking problem. And the agenda, to be clear, is to destroy it, not to destroy you, brother, not to destroy you. I want to be clear that the agenda, and this is the part that I struggle with, is one that has been carried by so many Black men. When Kanye West showed up on the scene, I'm talking about pre-Kardashian Kanye, pre this mm-hmm. new show. When Kanye West showed up on the scene in cardigans and backpacks, he was attacking masculinity in the way that it had been constructed by hyper-masculine thugs who drew all of their power from Money, cash, and hoes? That, yeah, I was going to say that too. And at the same time, then trying to, you know, push other men out of the space of being able to occupy maleness by making them more effeminate or feminizing them or all of the things that I've been reminded of listening to DMX uh, over the last, uh, you know, right? So I'm just, I just want us to realize that like none of this is new and we should, we should be better. We should want better for ourselves, for our children. Uh, who shouldn't have to grapple with this simple shit? And I hope that if nothing else, my brothers hear my heart when I say this is this is this is not about attacking you, um, and it is about the things that should allow you to also be free. One of my brothers posted on uh, it, uh, under my caption today that like you know his issue, and he's a father of two beautiful girls, married to a beautiful uh, black woman. He grew up in uh, the Caribbean. Um, he he's black. They are black. Their family is black. And he just talks about wanting to be free. So my boy Cooper says, forever I have been inclined to wear long pleated skirts. Kilts are apt to the description, but I didn't want it to be cultural. I just wanted the freedom to wear a skirt. The, the agenda should be so that all of us can be free enough to just do the shit that we want to do. Here's one thing that I, I that, that's sort of adjacent is that right now my, my nails are painted, right? Like they stay done for the most part. And I enjoy it. I won't say that it's easy. I now have a greater appreciation for not only the uh, cost, the physical cost, but the time and labor that women often expend when doing things that are traditionally thought of as, and I'm doing air quotes because it's not really tradition, traditionally thought of as, as feminine. But I enjoy being able to express my mood and my passion and things that I appreciate in the world by having art on my fingers. And I don't understand why a, a, a brother who decides for himself that he doesn't want to do that would have an issue with it, especially when there are so many folks who will get a manicure and then have their, have their nails buffed and or get clear polish. Like, that's, polish is polish, bro. I just, I, just, I just want us to be, let's just, let's just name things as they are and, and make space for all of us to show up doing that which gives us joy. That's how Black folks get free. In the real world, because a lot of these conversations that I have online never, ever come up in my life. And maybe this is just like me picking my circle, but even like, you know, meeting random guys, the response to a lot of this stuff is like, I ain't doing it, but like, do you? It's not like all the phobias. It's not all the rage. It's whatever. But it's just like, I see it come out online and I'm just like, you know, is some of this posturing for other men? What I think about are three things. One is the kind of brothers for whom they cling to this very white, uh, very cis, heteropatriarchal understanding of masculinity, in particular around like roles, um, and and for whom respect is really important. 
I don't think they're engaging in this conversation, at least online. Which leads me to my second point that a part of this has to be performative. I'm asking myself literally the kind of brother for whom they righteously believe that what Kid Cudi did is an affront to their masculinity, who then find themselves on your page and then think it appropriate to engage in what should otherwise be an exchange by offering up their trauma. And so then my last thing is that like, you know, COVID is a bitch. And so maybe it's just that like, you know, brothers are unable to be, you know, thugs in, in, in ways that feel good to them regarding, again, the performance of masculinity of which all of this is. So they are now channeling this online. And, and, and I will just offer up uh, for public consumption that like, I grapple with this mightily. I have an uncle, my mother's younger brother, who I've known my entire life. Like this man is in some of my earliest memories. He knows me. He knows where to find me, how to, how to pick up the phone and call me. He knows the, the work that I do, that I lead a civil rights organization that is clear and that as long as there have been Black people, even before the terms lesbian and gay existed, we were beautifully diverse. He knows all of that. And a week or two ago, I posted a video of Dwayne Wade demonstrating the gift that is us celebrating liberation in the way that you and I have been discussing. Like Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union were dope people before they had children. And to watch them evolve as a result of the gift of Zaya is it is it is just something that all of us should appreciate being able to, to witness. And so I post this video of Dwayne Wade having a conversation on a podcast. I think you and I talked about it as well. And my uncle, my mother's fucking brother, comes on my Facebook page to say, I think that they've all got it wrong, that there's a gay agenda, and it, 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 this, this should be expected because the, the, the end of the days are near. And will the real men stand up? And when I tell you that I felt a rage that I have not experienced in quite some time as an adult, who has access to therapy, that I, I didn't know what else to do other than to tell him because I, I, I thought like, I have a niece who's about to graduate. I might see him at some point soon. So let me not just block him and bottle these feelings. And so my response on, again, this public platform was to say, you, you know me and that you feel comfortable with this energy is signal enough for me to let you know that I will fuck you up on site. Like, we don't even need to have a conversation about this if this is what you actually feel, right? And at this point, I'm violating like all of Facebook's terms and conditions because <laughs> what he said was not a, a threat to like our, our, you know, anything on religious trauma, but like I'm now clearly crossing the line and I, 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 I added my mother so that he could, didn't feel compelled to go back and say to her and misrepresent exactly <laughs> what I say. Here, you can read it for yourself. <laughs> And I share all of this to say, right, like 20 years ago, I wouldn't have done that. One, because my, my, my uncle, you know, has been to jail and has spent most of his life lifting weight and, and being in the gym. And I, 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 my, my need to um, check his sense of maleness 
would have been overshadowed by thoughts of physical safety and a fear of being in jail. And my reality now is I have bail money. I'm not, I don't fear being incarcerated, especially for something that I really fully believe in. And I'm also now, I, I, I am where he was 20 years ago. I'm in, I'm, I am in my prime. And so like, for me, it was this real acknowledgement that like, you are, you are now on Facebook saying whatever you feel is important for you to say in this moment because you feel safe. This for you is a space where you can perform. My reality, my reality now is if I see you, I'm willing to risk jail time. And I know I shouldn't be saying this given the fact that I lead a civil rights organization and I'm supposed to show up with like all of this righteous indignation. But I'm saying this because like there are people who look like me, who have uncles like him, who kill themselves because they don't believe it's possible to get to a space like this. I want to be clear that like all of this conversation about Kid Cudi and address is to me as important as Arkansas passing legislation that now prevents doctors from being able to provide life-saving care to kids who didn't ask to be born, which has everything to do with these bills that are attacking trans girls, which will impact Black trans girls from being able to play sports and feel a part of community. Like All of this means that people die because the alternative is, is, is not like, I, I can't I can't show up in the world in the way that I need to because you get to do it. The, the alternative to that is, is for folks is usually death. That was a really long ass story, but um, I, I hope that it responds to your thoughtful acknowledgement of this for some people might be performance. Well, let me say two things in response to that. One, I saw the exchange between you and your uncle. And <laughs> yeah, that was to me, that was like family business. And I was like, I don't know what's going on here. And if you got to beat his ass, well, then, you know, I got five on it. I got five on it. <laughs> I was thinking about how little Nas X factors into this conversation um, because I know he's there, but I just didn't know quite where. Um, but I think it's super important that you brought up that, like, seeing all these conversations, like, you know, even if it's just a guy having a lash out moment on um, or a woman, because there's, there's women who, who said crazy things um, as well. But seeing people have like these lash out moments, I'm not affected by it. I'm kind of used to it at this point. Like, even if I acknowledge like, you know, it's a little more uh, visceral and a little more ragey right now, it doesn't affect my day to day. But I also always think about you know, the 14-year-old Montero that little Nas X makes this song to, his younger self, who sees these conversations about like, you know, what's appropriate, wearing a dress or the, the attack on um, uh, masculinity and feminizing men. And, you know, it's just the worst thing ever for a man to be in a dress or not be like this hard, you know, gray sweatpants, Tim's, DMX really, um, kind of manhood is the only way to express. And I was like, I feel like that's who it really affects. Yeah, yeah. All of that and with an asterisk though, right? Because DMX could have very much done the Will Smith, Eddie Murphy, uh, I'm going to wear a dress on screen and then, you know, uh, folks will give them a, give you a pass, right? Like Wesley Snipes, like there's always this asterisk that again, we as a community acknowledge and then don't lean into in ways that allow us to be a bit, a bit more free. And I, I, I celebrate everything that uh, Montero is doing now. My prayer is that he has people around him who are helping to shield him from some of this because he's allowing folks to be freer. Um, I have lots of questions about what this will will do for possibly other artists, um, some whom have you know dipped their 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 parts of different parts of their bodies at different parts of these waters, 
Um, and I'm most excited for how kids um, are consuming this, both kids for whom the affirmation that, that there are different ways to show up in the world exists and kids for whom it will allow them to be free from thinking that they have to show up in these problematic ways too. Or two, like kids who, you know, are not into any of these things, but are just like, oh, okay, that's a thing. Right. And then just go back to watching cartoons because kids really be that level of basic. Like people are always like, what about the kids? What about the kids? Like if you tell them it's okay, then it's just okay. And that's that. Yeah. Yeah. Difference doesn't have to mean deficit. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want my listeners to know about from you? I hope that if people have questions about any of the terms that I've used or would accept the invitation to increase their competence or compassion around the intersectional experiences of those of us who are proud to be Black, uh, as well as LGBTQIA+. I use the term same gender loving. What is the difference between same gender loving and gay or queer? So I do not use the term gay. Um, Words matter, there's power and precision. uh, Because gay is a political identifier for white gay men. When people think about and reflect upon and political scientists talk about the gay agenda, uh, it is often one that is driven by and reflects the things that are important to white men who have often the benefit of leveraging privilege associated with their whiteness, and then in some spaces, their gayness. So white boys get to come out. They move to neighborhoods like Hollywood, California, Chelsea, New York, Boystown, Chicago. They get to join Stonewall Associations and uh, other clubs and 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 get to derive power from that. Most Black LGBTQIA plus folk live with other Black folks, like generally disproportionately concentrated in the South and the states where it's legal to discriminate against us based on actual or perceived identity. And so I use a term that acknowledges that that my lived experience is different than, than theirs. Um, and it's a term that was created by a Black man. Um, and it also centers love. Um, often when people think about gay, they think about sex, they think about deviance, they think about shame and stigma. And seldom when people have conversations about uh, me or members of my community, um, do they ever ask questions about um, uh, if we are loved um, and what love looks like um, between and amongst us. And so um, that's why I use the term same gender loving, uh, acknowledging that there are a lot of folks who are like, there are too many letters under the umbrella already right now. What are you doing? But, you know, my hope is that one day we won't need to have any of the terms, but that requires uh, folks in positions of privilege to to give up the power that they derive from that very privilege. Uh, so I use same gender loving. And where can people find you if they want to know more about you? Uh, I hope they would seek out the National Black Justice Coalition or find me at Mr. David Johns across platforms. And thank you again for making this possible. Did you pack a box? That's really what I want to know. Have you packed oh, did- a box? So, um, my friend is in town. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, no more questions. Good luck with the move. (laughs) Such a delight. And again, I say that about everyone. But if I don't think you're a delight, then I don't run the interviews. I've interviewed a couple people that for various reasons, I just haven't run the interview. One of them, my dear friend, like I totally botched that. I was using a new recording platform and didn't download the interview right away. And it just went to the great cloud in the sky. She's a friend, but she's also kind of like a big sister mentor, someone that I admired before I met and then deeply admired even more afterward. And so like she was a get 
And I, <laughs> the interview didn't go through. She was so gracious when I told her. I was like, uh, I fucked up. And she was like, it happens. <laughs> it's like, ah. So that is this week's episode of Ratchet and Respectable. Thank you again to my dear friend, David Johns, for joining us. Thank you, as always, for listening. There is merch for Don't Waste Your Pretty on my website, DemetriaLLucas.com. You can wear it proudly with the original meaning, which is, you know, know your worth. Or you can wear it in the spirit of Mistress Marley. This is about her coin ain't wasting a damn of her pretty. She got white men on leashes, y'all. That's like a fantasy dream. Ugh. But, but there's Don't Waste Your Pretty merchandise on the site. We still have the hoodies. There's a bunch of sizes, mostly 2X to 4X. But we do still have some mediums and some large. Even in the midst of, of the move and the things that are going on with it, I am still shipping. So if you want your Don't Waste Your Pretty merchandise, the hoodies are on the site. They are currently 20% off. Um, as well as t-shirts and white and gold and pink and red. And there's a little something extra coming with the Don't Waste Your Pretty Tees. Many of you wrote in and was like, so Ratchet and Respectable had V's and I like to show my titties. Will we will we be able to show our titties for the Don't Waste Your Pretty too? Yes, just give me a second to get them up on the site. I'll announce a drop for the V's so that, um, so that everyone can get a chance to get them. So that is everything. I'm sure there are things I'm leaving out. Oh, because I wanted to talk about Bobby Brown on Red Table, but I've only been able to read about it. I haven't had a chance to sit down and watch the interview yet. So we'll save that for next week. Okay? Okay. Enjoy your weekend. Bye.